This is White Collared, the podcast, Season 1, Episode 14, Out of the Box. I would like to thank you for joining me for this episode of White Collared, the podcast, which is a retrospective commentary on the USA Network television series, White Collar. My name is Eric Alton Glenn Hilliard. Before we get into the episode, I would just like to remind you that this podcast does use enhanced content or it provides enhanced content in the episodes. And if you would like to use a podcast player that can provide you access to all that enhanced content, head over to www.newpodcastapps.com. You'll find a selection of podcast players there for whatever device you use. It will show you which of the advanced features that particular podcast app takes advantage of and gives you the opportunity to play around with some of those and see some of those enhanced features. Let's get into the episode. Out of the Box was the season one finale and first aired on March 9th, 2010, was written by Jeff Easton and directed by Kevin Bray. Neil and Alex make a move on the elusive music box. Peter realizes that Neil is up to something, but before he can do anything, nemesis Garrett Fowler launches a preemptive attack against Peter through Elizabeth. Things go bad for Neil as well when the heist does not go as planned, threatening his efforts to secure safety for himself and Kate from Fowler. The episode begins in the FBI conference room where Peter Lauren Cruz and Jones are sitting at a table and Neil rushes in and says, hey, I've solved our case. And he goes to demonstrate the principles behind what is called a lapping scheme. As soon as he has finished that explanation, he looks at his watch and makes an excuse and tells Peter, hey, I forgot about this champagne brunch that June is throwing. I got to get going. You mind? And Peter knows something's up. Sorry, Neil does not forget something like this. A champagne brunch? Neil, forget? No. So Peter knows that it's not what Neil is trying to portray it as. But obviously he doesn't know what it is at this point because the fact that Neil is pretending to have forgotten something that he would never forget is all the information that Peter has. The next scene takes place at a swimming pool, a, lar a very large private enclosed swimming pool. Alex is in the water. She entices him into the water without his suit by essentially telling him, get naked, get in the pool, and if you're wearing a wire, it'll short it out so I can be sure that nobody's listening. And then she reveals the details of the heist for the music box. The box is in Manhattan, inside the Italian consulate. The consul general had it tucked into a private safe in the consulate last year, and he's flying in soon to pick it up. Of course, Neil raises the question, well, what happens when the Italians notice that it's gone? And Alex points out that, well, let's see, the Nazis stole it from the Russians and the Italians weren't even supposed to have it. So what are they going to do? Call the cops? After that, we see Neil explaining the situation to Mozzie and Mozzie expressing some concerns. A consulate. Oh, great. An international incident. Look, I don't want to end my days in some underground prison adopting cockroaches as pets. We're not talking about North Korea. It's the Italians, Ma. They do prison just fine. Ask Galileo. Can we do it without Alex? No. She won't tell me which safe it's in. She was always a smart girl. Yeah. 
All of this is moot anyhow. The suit isn't gonna let you out of your anklet anytime soon. Not Peter. Then who? Fowler. If he wants me to get him the music box, he has to cut my anklet. He's manipulated it before. Okay. Let's say he goes for it. Let's say you get him the box. Then what? What do you mean? You give Fowler the music box, and Kate comes running into your arms. You settle down, buy a fixer-upper, and then join the PTA? Yeah. Neil, happily ever after isn't for guys like us. It is this time. It is. Agent Fowler, extension 221. One moment. Agent Fowler's office. Tell him I've got information on the music box he requested. Who is this? He knows. He can meet me at midnight tomorrow. Where? He'll know that too. I wouldn't say Mozzie is a glass half full type of guy. I would say he's more of a, how do you know it's even a glass kind of guy? I think Mozzie's paranoia is a little uh, excessive here. Even though the uh, consulate is theoretically part of a foreign country, they still have to kind of abide by certain standards of behavior and, and certain rules. So even if Neil gets caught, if Alex gets caught, there's only so much that the Italian consul can do to them. And it's probably not very likely that they could get them out of the country and throw them into an Italian jail, which probably is not as bad as Mozzie is imagining. When Neil says, look, we're not talking about North Korea, Mozzie responds, well, the Italians do prison just fine. Ask Galileo. However, let's consider the reference that he makes in his paranoia here, and that being uh, Galileo. Based on the information I could find, uh, Galileo never really actually spent much time in prison. He was largely under house arrest as a result of his guilty verdict in his trial. Now, it's generally believed that Galileo was imprisoned and tortured by the Roman Catholic Church for challenging their doctrine that the sun orbited around the earth, the earth was fixed in the cosmos, and any so-called scientific evidence to the contrary was contrary to the scriptures and therefore heresy. In fact, according to an article found on the Georgia State University website, 10 Myths Related to Science and Christianity, uh, written by a Jeffrey Breschers, the idea that Galileo was imprisoned and tortured for his heretical view that the earth moved around the sun is essentially a myth. The myth is that the Galileo trial, Galileo's position and the Roman Catholic Church's position was an example of conflict thesis. And I think part of that myth comes from the fact that at this time, the division between the Catholic Church and the civil government was hard to define. There was largely a civil government, but the Catholic Church basically ran things. It was almost a theocracy. Not quite, though. But Galileo's case was not about faith and science, but about an upstart scientist challenging the settled science. At that time, the settled science was the Aristotelian geocentric theory, which placed the Earth at the center of the basically the entire universe, and that everything else was built around the Earth. The Earth was the cornerstone of the universe. That was the settled science. 
Now, Nicholas Copernicus came up with his heliocentric theory, and that had the sun positioned at the center of the universe and motionless with the Earth and the other planets orbiting around it in circular paths, and then the stars out farther from there. At this point, these were largely just theories with no evidence, but the accepted theory was the Aristotle model. Now, Galileo came along and provided what he believed to be evidence to the contrary. He provided what he thought to be evidence that the Earth rotated around the sun, and so did the rest of the plan other planets, and that the stars... And so the, the case against Galileo was not about a conflict between faith and science or religion and science or the Catholic Church and science, but against scientific heresy, not religious heresy. Now, according to this article, uh, the reason the Catholic Church challenged Galileo's evidence was that Galileo's evidence was inconclusive. And also philosophically and theologically, the theory of heliocentricity challenged the Aristotle model of physics and cosmology. One of the basics of science is that, yes, we can have a discussion about alternate theories, but there has to be some evidence to support them before they can be accepted with any kind of credibility. But rather than have a discussion of it, the Catholic Church and the Italian government just decided to shut down all scientific debate by censoring Galileo. And they did it through his trial. Now, at the time, Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, sorry, I probably mispronounced that name. I'm sure I did made the, the argument that there had to be a correspondence between the theory of the scriptures and science. And if science proves our interpretation of scriptures to be erroneous, we should acknowledge our mistake and revise our hermeneutics. But the burden of proof is on the revisionist. While experience tells us plainly that the earth is standing still, if there were any real proof that the sun is in the center of the universe and that the sun does not go around the earth, but the earth around the sun, then we should have to proceed with great circumspection in explaining passages of scripture which appear to teach the contrary, and rather admit that we do not understand them, but this is not a thing to be done in haste. And as for myself, I shall not believe that there are such proofs until they are shown to me. And given the inconclusive evidence for Galileo's theory and the controversial theological implications of the issue, Galileo should refrain from teaching heliocentrism. Now, of course, Galileo did not see a conflict between the scriptures and the science, saying the Holy Bible and the phenomena of nature proceed alike from the divine word, the former as the dictate of the Holy Spirit, and the latter as the observant exitrix of God's commands. In later years, the church, of course, did change its position. I was slow. Pope Leo XIII, in a declaration of 1891, stated that any apparent contradiction between Scripture and science means that either Scripture has been misinterpreted or the science in question is merely theory, not fact. The church and her pastors are not opposed to true and solid science. They embrace it, encourage it, and promote it with the fullest possible dedication. Truth cannot contradict truth, and we may be sure that some mistake has been made either in the interpretation of the sacred words or the polemical discussion itself. And in 1992, Pope John Paul II declared, Galileo, a sincere believer, showed himself to be more perceptive in the area of biblical interpretation than the theologians who opposed him. If scripture cannot err, certain of its interpreters and commentators can and do err in many ways. Back in the episode, we see that Mozzie is trying to convince Neil that there is no happily ever after for guys like them. But Neil's not buying it. He is fixated on the plan. He and Kate getting away, starting a life together. Neil calls Fowler's office 
leaves him a cryptic message arranging a meeting because he needs to get Fowler to turn off his anklet. That's the only way this is going to work, which Mozzie has already pointed out, which Alex has already pointed out. So that's a biggie. Peter's not going to do it, obviously. So it's got to be Fowler. Fowler's done it before. Neil says he's the guy to do it this time. Next, we see Peter sitting at his dining table looking at some maps. Elizabeth comes in and spots the bag, his lunch, deviled ham. And that prompts a conversation between Elizabeth and Peter about whether the deviled ham is for a stakeout or just to annoy Neil. Because Neil doesn't like deviled ham. It's too low class for him. Let's, let's talk about deviled ham for a minute. Apparently, deviled ham is Peter's go-to sandwich when he's on a stakeout. Deviled ham, along with spam, have kind of gotten a bad rap over the years. A deviled ham is ham. Yeah, I know. Real surprising, isn't it? That's ham cured with water, salt, brown sugar, and seasonings. The original deviled ham was from a company called the William Underwood Company. Uh, William Underwood worked as an apprentice at Mackey & Company in London. They bottled foods and exported them to South America. And yes, at that time, so-called canned foods, what we call canned foods now, were placed in glass containers, not metal containers. It's the same type of thing that you know, your grandmother may have done. You've, you may have seen her do that. You know, put the stuff in the jar, put the lid on, put it in hot boiling water to seal it up. That's the same type of process. In 1817, Underwood moved to the United States, arriving in New Orleans, and according to the family legend, then walked from New Orleans to Boston. The William Underwood Company of Boston was established by Underwood in 1822, in Boston, Massachusetts, of course, as I said, and was established as a condiment company using glass backing techniques that he had learned in London. Among the condiments and other items that they packed in glass were mustard, ketchups, various kinds of ketchups, apparently, and pickled vegetables, cranberries, and, and so on, primarily focusing on mustard and pickling. By 1836, the company had shifted from using glass to steel cans coated with tin on the inside because glassmakers in the Boston area couldn't keep up with the demands being placed on them by the canning company. The company was just selling too much product. And again, as was the case with his London company, William Underwood sold its products to South America the West Indies, and Asia. The Underwood Company's canned foods proved valuable to settlers during the Manifest Destiny period of the 1840s to 1860s, and later the Underwood Company sold numerous canned foods to the Union troops during the uh, war between the states, more commonly known as the American Civil War. The company was successively owned and operated by members of the family until 1982 when it was sold to Pet Incorporated. Underwood's first canned deviled ham in 1868 was a mixture of ground ham with seasonings called deviling, and the deviling consists of adding spices such as pepper sauce, cayenne pepper, Dijon mustard, or chopped chili peppers. The devil logo was trademarked in 1870, and the company claims that it is the oldest food trademark still in use in the United States. Since the success of Underwood's deviled ham products, at least seven other companies have produced their own versions of a deviled ham, among them Armor & Company, and Libby, you know, if it says Libby, Libby, Libby on the label, label, label. You, anyway, you, you have to be old to remember that commercial. Sorry. Getting sidetracked there. Anyway, back into the episode. Elizabeth comes in, sees the sandwich, sees the paper, the, all the papers strewn out on the table. 
and pretty much immediately recognizes it has something to do with Neil. Part of this is because I'm sure Neil has become something of a regular problem for Peter. And so anytime that there's a problem that he brings home from work, there's a good chance it involves Neil. But she also recognizes that it's Neil's tracking data. So she's apparently seen this kind of information before and recognizes it. Again, back to previous discussions we've had where I pointed out that Elizabeth seems to be far more intimately involved in Peter's work than just a casual observer and far more intimately involved than the FBI would probably appreciate. In the next scene, we see the meeting that Neil arranged between himself and Fowler. Fowler. Oh, brought a friend. I'm wired. You forgive me if I don't take your word for it. He's clean. This better be good. I'm close to the music box. It's supposed to mean something to me? Well, you flew in from D.C., so I think it does. My window to get the box closes in the next week. I need my tracking necklet off now to make it happen. You're not suggesting something illegal, are you, Capri? Of course not. Especially to an upstanding federal agent such as yourself. You're pushing it. I'm going to push it some more. I give you the box, Kate, and I never hear from you again. That's my price. You know, I don't give a damn what you do, Caffrey. Just don't make it my problem. Neil, what the hell are you doing? Well, Fowler has brought his goon, his lackey, who we've also seen in Bad Judgment and Freefall. And he has the lackey, you know, kind of give Neil a pat down, make sure he's not wearing a wire or anything like that, because obviously Fowler is concerned about somebody finding out. One of the questions I've had about his lackey is, does he know what's going on? Or is he just a useful idiot doing what he's told without asking questions and being kept in the dark as to what is really going on? And he just goes along with it and accepts it as, well, I don't need to know. Don't ask any questions. Don't concern yourself with the fact that things don't make sense about what's happening, that the justifications for what's being done don't make sense. Just just shut up. Do your job. Don't ask questions. Anyway, so Fowler shows up and he and Neil have their little conversation. But of course, what neither Neil nor Fowler knows is that Peter is there watching. As I said, he was suspicious of Neil and the whole champagne brunch thing. He knew something was up. And then, of course, the tracking data, which showed Neil basically casing out a building, casing out his escape routes. Peter recognized the behavior. He knew what was going on. So he's been following Neil and he's there to observe the meeting. Next, we see Neil, Alex, and Mozzie in Neil's apartment discussing the situation with the Italian consulate, how they're going to get in, how they're going to accomplish this. Now, Mozzie keeps trying to point out the problems that they're going to encounter. Well, first of all, it's a piece of a foreign country. It's not just a banker museum. It's literally a foreign country. And then they have a problem of getting past the first wall of security and into the main ballroom, which is the way to get into the inner sanctum where everything is kind of focused. Well, the party's going to do that first part, but the security door into the inner sanctum has no keypads. There's no biometrics. There's no lock. You have to get buzzed in through a security guard who's standing there. That's a problem. Mozzie points it out. Neil's response is, eh. Then there's the problem of the hallway, which is monitored by the closed circuit camera. 
And then there's the problem of getting into the vault room with the tools necessary to crack the safe because it's a high security torture resistant safe. And Mozzie says, hey, you're going to need heavy metal to get through fire resistant plate. And Neil's response is, eh, details, details. It's not just details. This is significant. Mozzie's trying to point out, we got a problem here. And Neil's response is, eh, details. Now, it could be that he's already got an idea. And that's fine. But why does he have to be so dismissive of Mozzie? Granted, Mozzie appears to be negative. He appears to be throwing out negative uh, feedback. He appears to be Debbie Downer, let's say. But he's really not. He's actually providing valuable insight and feedback. But he's being dismissed because it doesn't go along with something else. And unfortunately, that's a common response to people in government, corporations, businesses, whatever, academia. Hey, I see a problem with this. Oh, just shut up and, and go along with the program. You're causing trouble. No, they're not causing trouble. They're pointing out trouble. Big difference. And unfortunately, people who point out problems are never given their due or very rarely given their due because they're viewed as troublemakers, creating obstacles. They're not creating anything. They're pointing them out. They're pointing out that you need to be aware of these and plan for these because they could be a problem. Or they will be a problem, depending on what it is. It's just, it's wrong of Neil to be so dismissive of Mozzie's feedback and information and his perspective on things, because it's a valuable perspective. But they move back in time to the problem of getting into the party, which will give them admittance to the consulate, which they will then use to get into the inner sanctum and then later into the security vault. Alex's idea is to be a plus one for a duke. Mozzie, of course, is going in as an employee of the catering company and as somebody who is friends with the proprietor of the greatest cake bakery. He expects to get a glowing reference from Neil to ensure that he gets the job, which, of course, he will. And then Neil is planning to make a donation to the people of Italy. But before we find out what that is, Peter shows up. And of course, when Peter shows up, Alex and Mozzie get out of there in a hurry. After Mozzie and Alex leave, Peter confronts Neil and says, look, I know what's going on. I know you met with Fowler. I know you've been planning the heist of the music box. You've even got your comrades here. I know what's going on. Tell me I'm wrong. And of course, Neil takes advantage of Peter's mistake and says, you're wrong. Now, it's a mistake on Peter's part because he knows Neil will use the literal things that people say against them. And what Peter did was basically tell Neil, repeat these words. They don't have to have any meaning any sincerity. They don't have to be honest words. Just repeat the words. Tell me I'm wrong. I mean, that's literally what he said. That's not what he intended to say. That's not what he meant by it. But those were his literal words. Tell me I'm wrong. Okay, you're wrong. I'm just doing what you told me to. It, it doesn't mean anything. It's just complying with your instructions. And of course, he, he tries to point out to Neil that Peter's given Neil a shot at a better life. But in Neil's mind, this better life isn't the life he wants. He wants Kate. That's his weakness, Kate. And he doesn't seem to think that the two are compatible. And apparently Peter doesn't think the two are compatible either, I guess. Doesn't think that Neil can have Kate and this better life simultaneously. I don't know whether that's true or not at this point, but it's certainly something that Neil should be exploring or considering or trying to figure out because he clearly does enjoy the work that he does with Peter at the FBI. So we've, we've seen him enjoy the job. We've seen him enjoy helping people. And we've seen that he's good at it. And he really, I think, on one hand, does desire this life, but he desires Kate more. 
And it's a shame that he's not trying to figure out some way to integrate the two of them together. But that's how he and Peter leave the conversation. And then we see Fowler's goon come in and provide him with some information about Neil and about Peter and how Peter seems to be involved. And Fowler points out that Burke's kind of trying to interfere. I've got my people watching him, and then now he's trying to watch me. So he makes a phone call. Mentor's moving forward, but we might have a problem. Agent Burke might try to interfere. Yes, sir. Yeah, I can, I can take Burke out of play. As long as you remember our deal. I get the box and this is over. All this time it has appeared that Fowler has been the person running the operation against Neil and Peter running mentor, running the whole music box scam. But here we find out, I think for the first time, that it's not. Fowler is just somebody else's goon. He's just somebody else's errand boy. Of course, we don't know who that is at this point because we don't see the other end of the conversation. But Fowler is just doing somebody else's bidding and he seems to want out. He tells the person on the other end of the phone, look, I get you the box and then I am out of it. I am done. Well, that's a pretty naive view. If you're a corrupt cop and somebody knows it and they're using you to do something else that's corrupt, they're not going to let you off the hook. There's only two ways that this can possibly end, and neither one of them is good for Fowler. One is that he continues to be a goon and an errand boy for somebody higher up the food chain who's going to continue to use him to commit crimes while keeping their distance, basically making him the potential fall guy. Or if Fowler insists on getting completely out, not doing any more of this other person's bidding, Fowler's got to go. He knows too much. He's a liability. He's a threat. He's got to go. Anybody who believes that there's honor among thieves is a fool, and Fowler's a fool. In the next scene, we see Neil surrounded by photographs of a statue, and we see him working on a reduced size or a smaller version of the statue, modeling it out of clay. Alex comes in and sees what Neil's working on, and he tells Alex, it's a study of Fancelli's Statua di Volcano. Now, I did a search on Fancelli, or his, his full name, I guess, is Carissimo D'Antonio Fancelli, and there wasn't a whole lot of information I could find about him. The references I found were all just copies of other references, so they're just repeats of the same information. And the information I could find indicates that he was an Italian sculptor and architect who died in 1632. He was part of the late Mannerist and Baroque periods and was mainly active in Tuscany. Domenico Periotti and Giovanni Battista Piorati were two of his pupils, and it's unclear how Fancelli fits into the large pedigree of Tuscan sculptors that includes Cosimo and Lucia Fancelli. Other than that, there's not a whole lot of information about Fancelli that I could find. Now, I think that lack of information about Fancelli is significant in terms of the situation with the statue, Neil, and the Italians. Neil says that he's working on an art study of the statue by Fancelli. An art study is a practice piece created by an artist, either by a drawing, a sketching, a painting, or uh, like a, a miniature version of a planned larger or full-size statue. And the purpose of the art study is to create something that the artist can use as a reference when creating the, the final main piece. And he uses the art study, or he or she uses the art study, to help plan things like the various elements to include color schemes, various elements of the composition, and so on. 
Given what little seems to be known about Fincelli, and apparently how little of his work remains, I really have to wonder why the Italians would accept, at face value, the notion that Neil, an American, somehow possesses a legitimate study of anything by Fancelli. I have to wonder why the Italians would accept at face value that any art study at all or any preliminary work at all by Fancelli exists, much less how an American got a hold of it. It seems the height, the gullibility. And I guess, of course, that's what con men like Neil prey on is people's gullibility, their willingness to believe the unbelievable because it's what they want to believe. Hmm. Sounds a little bit like Neil's belief in Kate, if Peter and everybody else is to be believed. Hmm, interesting. Interesting parallel there. Neil wants to believe it, so he believes it. The Italians want to believe it, so they believe it. But as Neil points out to Alex, when she says, it looks like the real thing, don't let it fool you. And she says, I won't. And of course, Neil is talking about the statue, but... Alex is talking about Neil, Neil's motivation, Neil's protestations that this whole caper has nothing to do with Kate, that he just wants the music box to get Fowler off his back. She doesn't buy it. And this is her saying that she doesn't buy it. Of course, when Alex says, hey, I won't let it fool me. And she's referring to the situation between Neil and Kate. Uh, Neil picks up on that. And he says, you know, look, I know we have a complicated relationship, you and I. And the conversation moves back through time as they are contemplating the anklet situation. It's clear that they have had their issues with each other, both professionally and personally. They basically cut each other out of their lives, both professionally and personally, because it's obvious that they had a personal relationship that got into the way of their professional relationship. Or, or maybe it was the other way around. And eventually she says, look, I know what this is about. I know you're going to take the box. I know it's all about Kate. Don't lie to me. Just be honest with me. That's what it's about. And Neil says, hey, look, look at my anklet. That light's never been off before. Fowler did it. Well, Fowler did it. But in the next scene, we see Fowler doing even more. Elizabeth is at her offices and Fowler walks in with a bunch of his goons, starts tearing the place apart and making life miserable for Elizabeth. And of course, she's all upset. Fowler's got a warrant. He's got his guys tearing the place apart, seizing various things that she's got there in her catering offices. And of course, she calls Peter. Peter is with Jones. Jones is telling Peter about how he and Lauren Cruz are having their phones tapped. They recognize those clicks. And now Fowler's back. And there's obviously some sort of connection. Elizabeth gets a hold of him on the phone and she tells him the FBI is here and they are tearing everything apart. Peter heads over to her offices and confronts Fowler. And Fowler is very obnoxious, and he is just trying to push Peter's buttons. He's, he's trying to do it both directly by his comments to Peter and by his comments and accusations about Elizabeth. He is really trying to get under Peter's skin, and it works. Peter's had it. He gets fed up, and he punches Fowler, gives him a good shot in the mouth. And Fowler, using his authority as an OPR agent... Granted, he's actually misusing his authority as an OPR agent because what he's doing is totally illegitimate, and therefore his use of his authority is illegitimate, but he's using it anyway. He suspends Peter for two weeks and just has a big old grin. Granted, it's got blood all over it from his, his lip, but he's got a big old grin on his face when he throws Peter out of Elizabeth's office. Elizabeth and Peter arrive at home, and Elizabeth is still upset, and understandably so. She was arrested she had assets seized from her company, assets that clients have paid for and that she now has to cover. And all this occurred in front of her employees and her clients. And she's understandably upset because she may not have a business anymore. 
and she doesn't understand why. Now, she knows that it has something to do with Peter, probably has something to do with Neil, because she knows about Fowler. She knows who Fowler is. She knows that Fowler has been creating problems for Peter and Neil, but she doesn't understand why it's happening. And maybe that's the biggest part of her frustration is not knowing why. It's bad enough when somebody is trying to destroy you and you know why. Even if it's not true, or even if their motivations are malicious and based on nothing more than just the fact that they are an evil person, if at least you know why they're doing it, there's a little bit of comfort in that. It doesn't necessarily make it more acceptable, but at least it makes it maybe a little bit easier to deal with. But she doesn't even have that. She doesn't know why this is going on. All she knows is that she's being destroyed by somebody who, for whatever reason, has just taken exception to Peter and her or to Peter, and he's using her to destroy Peter, and no clue. And unfortunately, her anger at Fowler, her anger and frustration at the situation is spilling over onto Peter. She's kind of taking it out on Peter. She's not wanting to take it out on Peter. It's just, it's boiling over and he's there, and he happens to be getting caught in the crossfire of her emotion, her anger, her frustration. But she does at least somewhat recognize that, hey, she's not really being fair to Peter, He's not really responsible for the situation. She comes around to the point of, get him. Just, just get him. Nail him. About that time, Neil calls. And Peter is definitely not in the mood to talk to Neil. Neil's trying to apologize. He says, look, I didn't know this was going to happen. That wasn't my intention. But Peter doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He, he says, I don't want your apology. You're under house arrest for the next two weeks. And you try leaving your apartment, you're done for. And Neil says, yeah, well, Jones already told me. But of course, that doesn't work either because when Peter goes to answer the knock on the door, who is it? It's Neil. So Peter and Neil go out on the porch and have a little conversation about the situation. I never thought he'd come after Elizabeth. You have to believe me. I don't care what you thought. You're helping him destroy everything I worked for, everything my wife has worked for. He took you out so he couldn't stop me. I know, and I walked right into it. Well, like you said, we all have our weaknesses. He's got mine. He found yours. When this is over, we take him down. For good. Look at this. Neil, your light is off. Yeah, but according to Jones, the monitoring station says I'm at home. Why isn't it transmitting? Fallon. He shut you down so you could steal the box. How'd he do that? I don't know. I'm almost impressed. You're not going to arrest me? I can't. I don't have a badge. Whew. All right. Let's say you pull off this heist. You really think he's going to let you and Kate go? I need to know if she's... You do the same for Elizabeth. Yeah. After today, I'm not going to argue that. I'm going to beat him. What are you going to do? Fowler took my batch. I'm going to take his. He's aiding you in illegal activity. I'm just doing my part. I'll be watching you and everyone you work with. I know. I'll need help from somebody with FBI access who Fowler can't link to me. Somebody I can trust. You got someone in mind? Peter points out to Neil the same thing I just mentioned a little bit earlier. That basically there is no honor among thieves. He says, you really think Fowler's going to let you and Kate go? And Neil starts to say something. He starts to say, I need to know if she's... And then it stops. 
It could be, I need to know if Kate's the one. I need to know if Kate's really betrayed me and working with Fowler to manipulate me to get this music box for whatever purpose. I need to know. We don't know what he was going to say there, obviously. But I think he's beginning to have his doubts about Kate. Or at least he's beginning to accept some of the arguments that everybody's been making about Kate and what her true motivations are. And I think he is smart enough to recognize that there is no honor among thieves. Neil has to realize that if he can't take care of Fowler for good, he will always be looking over his back. Even if he manages to get the music box and get away with Kate, he'll always be looking over his back because he continues to be a threat simply by his very existence. But the upshot is that Peter realizes that he's got to have somebody else there working for him, somebody that Fowler can't draw a direct connection to Peter from, somebody that Peter can trust, and he's got somebody in mind. And here we see the return of Diana. Peter and Diana meet on a park bench, and Peter outlines what he's needing, and he asks for Diana's help. I think she's smart enough to realize that by going after an OPR agent, she's kind of opening herself up to some sort of retaliation by Fowler specifically and OPR in general. It's a risky move, but she's there for Peter. Back at the apartment, Neil and Mozzie are talking. Neil confirms that, yes, the consulate accepted his gift. He spoke with a Mr. Tomasi, who is the consulate manager. The statue is now safely in the inner sanctum, which is where they want it to be because that's where they're going. Security is exactly what they expected it to be, and everything's going according to plan. So they say, okay, this is it. It's re ready to go. It's time to do the dirty deed. Let's cut off the anklet. And Mozzie makes a toast. We feel free when we escape, even if it be but from the frying pan into the fire. Eric Hoffer. Who is Eric Hoffer? Eric Hoffer was born in 1902 in the Bronx, New York. His parents were immigrants from Alsace, which was then part of Imperial Germany. By age five, Hoffer could already read in both English and his parents' native German. At the age of seven, he lost his mother and his eyesight. His eyesight did inexplicably return when he was 15. He said, when my eyesight came back, I was seized with an enormous hunger for the printed word. I read indiscriminately everything within reach, English and German. A short time after his eyesight returned, his father died, and taking the $300 insurance money from his father's life insurance policy, he got onto a bus, headed to Los Angeles, and then spent the next 10 years wandering. In 1943, Hoffer became a longshoreman and settled in California. Eventually, he found himself working three days a week and spending one day a week at the University of California in Berkeley. In 1951, he published his first book entitled The True Believer. Almost overnight, he had become a public figure known as the Longshoreman's Philosopher. He was recognized as a highly original thinker on the American literary and philosophical scene. In a 1956 profile of Hoffer, Look Magazine identified him as Ike's favorite author, thus elevating the blue-collar working man to the level of President Eisenhower's bedside table. Public figures ranging from author and historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. to philosopher and social critic Bertrand Russell also praised his works. Hoffer left the docks in 1964 and shortly thereafter became an adjunct professor at the University of California, Berkeley, where he had spent time studying. 
Eventually, he published more than 10 books. In 1983, he was also awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Ronald Reagan. Eventually, the Eric Hoffer Book Award was created, which honors the memory of the great American philosopher. The purpose of the award is to highlight salient writing, as well as the independent spirit of small publishers, with a grand prize of $2,500 awarded annually. Since its inception, the Hoffer Award has become one of the largest international book awards for small, academic, and independent presses. In addition to the quote that Mozzie gives, one of Hoffer's probably more well-known quotes, although I was familiar with the quote, but I, I didn't realize who the author was. It was Eric Hoffer. And he said, when people are free to do as they please, they usually imitate each other. Back in the episode, Peter and Diana meet at his house to discuss what is going on and what Diana has found. This is everything I could find on Garrett Fowler. Not much there. I put in a request to go after his files. I'm just waiting on the judge. You don't need much. He's aiding a premeditated robbery. The anklet is the key. You sure it's him? Fowler's Dr. Caffrey's information in the past, and he's doing it now. I need to know how. Well, Marshall's monitor the anklet. Department of Justice supersedes their authority. Fowler could override them and get access, or he's altering the data remotely. Well, you can't do that from just any internet connection. You need a secure line. He's doing it from OPR offices. They have one in New York. That's where I need to go. Well, nobody gets into that building without federal, federal clearance cl and an appointment. They wouldn't let me within 100 yards. But then let me. Fowler finds out, and it's career suicide. I came here to help you. Thank you. Well, if Diana didn't understand it from their earlier meeting, she understands it now. This is career suicide, or potentially career suicide. But she's not going to let that stop her because I think she's like Peter in that she believes that it's worth going down fighting for what you believe in and for what is right, even if you know that that's how it's going to turn out. Or at least it's worth the risk of it turning out that way. Next, we see the party getting started. Neil shows up as George Danbury and is meeting with Mr. Tomasi, and he tries to worm his way into the inner sanctum. He, he uses the excuse of, hey, I'd like to see how you have the statue presented, but it's not going to work. Now, again, in this scene, Tomasi has the opportunity to stop and think about the reality of the situation. When Tomasi thanks Neil for the, uh, the statue being donated, Neil says, hey, I know how important Fancelli's work is to Italian sculpture and Italian art history. And I just couldn't let it sit around in my family's attic collecting dust. Again, even if we accept the possibility that an art study by Fancelli does exist, how did this American get it and what was it doing just sitting in their attic? This alone should cause so many alarms to go off in Fancelli's head. As another kind of point of reference here, not only did, how did this American family get it, but who is this George Danbury? What is his relationship to the art world? Obviously, his family doesn't have any relationship to the art world because supposedly they had this art study by a famed Italian sculptor just sitting in the attic collecting dust. So they didn't recognize what it was or what its value was. So there's no family history in the Danbury family that has any kind of relationship to the art world, apparently. So who's George Danbury? Where did he come from? What is his relationship to the art world? All of these things should be raising red flags, but they don't. Well, in the party, we see Neil standing around enjoying his drink. We see Mozzie acting as a waiter. And we see Alex there as the Duke's plus one. Neil gives the signal. Mozzie does a bump on Mr. Tomasi. And Alex relieves him of security card. 
and then hands it to Neil. And after a little bit of back and forth between the two of them, Neil decides to put his part of the plan into action. Excuse me. Excuse me. Pardon. I'd like to make a toast to our gracious hosts. And all of you, because this is a very special night. Oh, it's special to me anyway. You probably have no idea who I am, so I'm going to tell you. I'm an internationally renowned art thief, and tonight, I'm here to rob you. Well, that's quite a way to attract some attention, and attract attention he does. Security comes and hustles him out of the room and takes him down to the inner sanctum, past the door that requires the security guard to open it, and they take him down and they do a little bit of an interrogation. While that's going on, Alex decides it's time to put her part of the plan into action. And she's walking around, dropping these little canisters in out-of-the-way places. And the canisters start releasing smoke. Everybody thinks there's a fire. And so they start evacuating. And security calls Tomasi, who leaves Neil presumably locked up down in the little interrogation room. As they come running out, Mozzie sneaks in by holding the door open with a tray while Tomasi and his staff are not watching and then proceeds to take a camera, put it on a little stick, a digital camera, put it on a stick and raise it up in front of the security cameras. Now, at some point, they had gotten a photograph of the hallway with nobody in it. I'm uncertain as to how they managed to accomplish this because the camera was on the top of a stick. It had to have the perspective of the security camera, which means that whatever image they are going to present to the security camera had to be taken from that vantage point and needed to presumably be taken while they were there. But it's on a stick. So unless Mozzie was able to do it with some sort of a timer just before he put it in front of the security camera, I'm not sure exactly how he managed to do that, but he did. And he holds the small digital camera in front of that security camera. And so all the security guard sees is an unoccupied hallway projected from the display on the digital camera into the security camera. And that gives Neil the opportunity to go down into the security vault, grabs the hammer from the statue, breaks the statue open and pulls out his safe cracking kit. As he's working his way through the safe, Tomasi realizes that something's not right that all these smoke canisters are just that. They're smoke canisters. They're a diversion. So he starts heading back down. Neil comes on out. He's got the box and Alex shows up. Now, apparently her showing up was not part of the original plan because Neil sees her and says, is everything all right? She's not there because that's part of the plan. That's part of her plan. And while she's there giving Neil a congratulatory hug, she steals the security card out of his pocket and makes her way out with the box. And Neil and Mozzie have to scramble to get out of there. Mozzie and Neil manage to escape, and we see Neil coming back into his apartment, only to be greeted by Peter. There's an APB out for a man of interest in a slick suit. Apparently, he repelled on the wall of a consulate. Be fine. You're not going to prosecute for the theft of an item they weren't supposed to have in the first place. An item you don't seem to have. Well, let's just say Alex had other plans. Should have seen it coming. Any idea where she went? If Alex wants to disappear, she does. Without that box, Fowler's side wins. I need to know. What about us? Are we on the same side here? You said I earned the right to make my own choices. You changing your mind? Fowler's still out there. This isn't over yet. I've got something in play. We've seen this kind of reaction from Neil before. He misreads Peter. 
Peter is just simply trying to find out where he and Neil stand in relationship to each other. He's not trying to go back on what he said about Neil being allowed to make his own choices. He's not He's not going back on that. He's not changing his position. He's not meaning it as a threat or a warning to Neil in any way. He's just simply saying, where do we stand? I need to know because I'm in this situation and I need to know, one, who I can trust, and two, who is doing what what the players are, what the situation is with regard to other people so I can know how to plan my my next move. But Neil takes it the wrong way. He takes it as being a revocation of his right to make his own choices, which is not what it is at all. For somebody who is supposed to be or needs to be so good at reading people in his chosen line of work, Neil, for some reason, just does not have the ability to read Peter properly, or at least not all the time. After Peter tells Neil, it's not over yet, I've got something in play, he leaves. June comes up, and Neil basically is telling her goodbye. He doesn't say it in those words, but it's it's clear that he's telling her goodbye. And I think she understands what he's saying, doesn't understand why, but understands that there's something going on. Then Alex shows up with the box. Alex presents him with the box, and, and the reason Alex gives for returning the box is actually twofold. First of all, even though she hopes for Neil's sake that Kate is, in fact, the girl that he thinks she is, she didn't want it to be goodbye, her taking the box and disappearing, in case Kate isn't the person that Neil thinks she is. That the situation between Neil and Kate isn't what he is hoping that it is, and she wants to be there next in line if it's not. Plus, she says she didn't need all the heat that it was going to bring. In the meantime, Diana is sneaking into Fowler's office. She gains access to his computer while he's out at lunch and starts downloading files onto a flash drive. She does get caught by Fowler's goon, and she makes up a story about, well, I'm from IT, I'm installing some new security software, he wanted it done on his lunch break, you know how he gets. And the goon seems to buy it, or at least he acts like he's going to buy it, and he walks off and leaves Diana to finish the job. While that's happening, Neil and Fowler meet, and Fowler gives him the paperwork, and Neil gives Fowler the box. Neil says, look, I just want to make sure that this is legit, that it's, everything is going to be as you said. I, I need promises. He discovers that Mentor was, in fact, created specifically for him and that the deal is good for him and Kate to get new identities and disappear. That's the presumption, because, again, as Peter had pointed out to Neil, don't believe that Fowler's going to just let you go. Neil does take the opportunity to ask what's so special about that box. And Fowler says, hey, don't know. That's above my pay grade. Here's where you can find Kate. Time and place. Go meet her. Have a nice life. Well, as soon as that conversation is over, Fowler's goon calls him and says, hey, we've got a problem. Someone is here on your computer. They downloaded the entire mentor file. In fact, it looks like she got the whole hard drive. And Fowler's not happy. Next, we see Neil and Mozzie on the sidewalk. And Neil is telling Mozzie, after a fashion, goodbye. A Washington-approved disappearing act. Oh, technically, I work for OPR. No, technically. It's just on paper. With this new identity, you can go anywhere. With Kate. And it's illegal. It's genius. No one will be able to find you. Governments, old enemies, old friends. Remember that old Chinese curse? May you live in interesting times. These certainly are interesting times. Remember the second half of that curse? Now you find what you're looking for. Gonna say goodbye to the suit. 
send me a postcard. I think there's so much these two guys want to say to each other, but they just don't know how to say it. They've obviously been friends for a long time. This is obviously difficult for both of them. More difficult, I, I guess, for Mozzie than Neil, because Neil at least sees it as a gateway to something else, something larger, something that he has wanted that is more valuable to him than even his friendship with Mozzie. Mozzie seems to take it as kind of an end of an era. It's him losing something and someone that's important to him. Because as he says, no one will be able to find you, not old enemies or old friends. After they separate, we see Elizabeth at home. She comes into the living room, dining area, and there's a huge, huge vase of flowers on the table with a card, her name on it, and a note that says speed dial one. So she picks up the phone that is stashed inside the flowers and speed dials one. Elizabeth. Neil, what is this? I got a friend at the Channing Museum. He's gonna call you today. He owes me a favor. Really, why? To hire Burke Premier Events to do their annual master's retrospective. That's, that's, that's impossible to get. You just got it. Why are you doing this? Just trying to fix what I broke. There's something I wanted to ask you. You and Peter, how'd you know? I think there's a difference between loving the idea of someone and actually loving who they really are. Listen, I gotta go. Thanks for everything. Okay, well, um, I'll, t I'll talk to you later. Goodbye, Elizabeth. Neil is telling Elizabeth goodbye, although I don't think she, at the time of the phone conversation, understands that that's what he's saying. He couches it in an apology, an apology for what happened to her at her catering business, her catering shop, and that he's making it up to her by getting this special high-end assignment that is impossible for anyone to get. And so she just takes that as just Neil trying to apologize and set right everything that's happened as a result of whatever's going on. And then, of course, he asks her, with you and Peter, how did you know? And she doesn't answer the question. I think she senses Neil's real question or Neil's real problem, at least, because she doesn't say how she knew Peter was the one. What she tells Neil is basically, you need to realize that the idea and the thing are not the same. That your fantasy of something, your anticipation of something, your desire for something is not the same thing as the reality of it. You can imagine it to be anything you want. The reality is not going to necessarily match it. I think Elizabeth understands that Neil is not necessarily in love with Kate. He's in love with what he imagines he and Kate have or what he imagines he and Kate had, and that he can somehow magically restore that. I think she's telling him, you're chasing a dream, you're chasing a fantasy, or at least there's that possibility, and you need to re-examine what it is that you're chasing. Are you chasing the reality or the fantasy? He doesn't dismiss what she says. It seems to cause him pause, but he doesn't challenge it. He just says goodbye. Next, Diana is leaving Fowler's office, going down to the parking garage underneath the building, presumably, talking to Peter. And as she comes out of the stairwell into the garage, she's greeted by Fowler. 
Of course, Fowler wants to know what she knows, how much she knows, and tries to play the innocent, the good cop who's just doing his job. And how, why would you question me? It's all legitimate. But of course, Diane is not playing along. So Fowler decides he's got to take it to the next step and pulls his gun and says, I want that flash drive. Burke. Fowler. What the hell are you doing? Of course, you're involved in this. Stay where you are. Lower your weapon. You have no idea where you're getting involved. Lower you just, your you weapon. Just stay where you are. Why are you doing this? We're on stay the same where you team. Are. Stay where you are. You're out of your league. You have no idea what you're getting involved in. You don't want to shoot an agent. You put your gun down. Drop the weapon. Point your gun Drop down. The weapon. Put the gun the down. Down. How'd you know he's wearing a vest? I didn't. Now, when Peter comes around the corner and sees Diana and Fowler. Uh, Fowler's got a gun drawn on Diana. Peter doesn't have his gun out. He wasn't really expecting anything. Although I would have thought that he could have heard some voices and might have been a little more prepared than he was. But depending on what he heard, he might not have had sufficient reason to pull his gun. But anyway, he walks around the corner. He's not armed or he, he doesn't have a weapon in his hand. And Fowler, of course, tries to push Peter into staying out of it. And Peter is trying to basically distract Fowler because he sees that Diana's got a gun in the back of her pants. And her having that gun back there is a little bit of a problem for me. First of all, I make no claims as to being an expert in this subject, but I do know a little bit about it. And I do know that carrying a gun where she was carrying that particular one, it's called the small of the back carry. That is not a very highly recommended location. In fact, of all the different positions that one can carry a gun in, that one is one of the lower ranking ones as far as recommendations. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, being behind your back means you have to reach a lot farther around to get the gun. That takes time. It takes a longer motion to reach back there and get it. And it's just not recommended for that reason, as well as the fact that if you get into a confrontation and it turns physical, you're in a wrestling match or whatever, that assailant has better access to your gun than you do, as evidenced by the fact that Peter was able to just casually reach around behind her and get it. Imagine that happening in a, in a fist fight or a wrestling match. And the other thing is that, as far as I could tell, there was no retention strap on that. It's a leather holster. And actually, I think I said it was inside the back of her pants. It's actually on the outside of the back of her pants. It would have been better if it was on the inside of her pants in the back, because then her pants would have been acting as a little bit of a retention mechanism. But it's outside in a leather holster, and there's nothing to hold it back in there. So it's just that much easier for somebody to get it because they don't even have to unsnap it. Somebody can come up behind you and pull that out before you even have a clue. At least with a retention strap that has a snap, you're going to feel them unsnap it before they can get it pulled out. And that's going to give you at least a fraction of a second to respond and try and prevent that from happening. I'm not sure that the FBI training goes specifically into details about where and how to carry a weapon. I imagine they do, but I can't imagine under any circumstances that they would really recommend that any of their agents do a small of the back carry. I think there is a legitimate purpose for it. There are legitimate times for it, but I don't think this was it. And just a few moments later, we see Diana pull her gun out from in front of her, which is an inside the waistband abdomen carry. Now, this is not the same thing that we see gangbangers do in the movies where they just stick a gun down their pants. No, this is, this is in a holster. That is actually considered one of the better carry locations for a concealed weapon. It's not without its drawbacks, but 
quick and immediate access and control of the weapon and control of access to the weapon by somebody else is probably the greatest in that particular carry position. So I would say this was her primary gun. The one she was carrying small of the back was her backup. But again, I don't think that most agents, most police officers would carry a backup in that position. But the result is that between Diana's backup gun that Peter gets a hold of and her own, they end up in something of a standoff, but Fowler looks like he wants to end the standoff. He seems to make a move that Peter needs to defend against, so he shoots Fowler. And of course, the result is that Fowler goes down. Good for Fowler that he's wearing a vest, although Peter didn't know that. And even though he told Fowler, you don't want to shoot an agent, Peter was willing to do so. But I guess Peter having Diana there as a witness, having Diana with the evidence, he was in a better position to justify his shooting than Fowler would have been. So there is that. But it's not over. The standoff is over, but the situation's not over. What the hell is Mentor? Mentor's legit. Gaffrey works for us now. He and Kate are deep undercover for OPR. OPR doesn't have deep cover agents. You are helping him disappear. He wants to go. Met with him again. He was going to disappear. I need to know where he is. Tell me where he is. Why do you care? Give me the drive. You want me to upload this to DC? Or do we have something to talk about? Airstrip by the Hudson Hangar 4. For a guy who's been running so much surveillance on Neil and Peter, it's amazing that he would even have to ask, why do you care? Why do you care that Neil's leaving? Why do you care that he's supposedly deep undercover? Why do you care that we're giving him a new identity and helping him disappear? Why do you care? Because it should be obvious. Actually, it should be obvious that there's, there's two reasons. First of all, Peter has respect for the Bureau. He may push the line. He may let Neil push the line. He may even let Neil step over the line from time to time in the pursuit of justice. But as far as the Bureau goes, he has respect for the Bureau. He does not want to see the Bureau tainted by out-and-out -out dirty cops. Because when he pushes the line, when he lets Neil push the line, when he lets Neil step over the line just a little bit, he's not doing it for himself. He's doing it in the pursuit of justice. That's where he draws the line. He's not doing it for himself. Fowler is doing this for himself. Whoever's behind Fowler is doing it for themselves. They're using the Bureau for themselves. They're abusing the Bureau for themselves. They're using and abusing other agents and other people for themselves. They are no different than the criminals they're supposed to be pursuing, than the criminals they're supposed to be putting in jail. They are essentially the same thing. They're just doing it under the cover of the FBI and sullying the reputation of the FBI, of Peter's FBI. And he, he won't tolerate that. And, of course, the other reason that Fowler, again, should know, having surveilled both him and Neil, is that he genuinely likes Neil. He considers him a friend. And friends are concerned about friends. And when something threatens their friend, they want to know what it is so they can do something about it or try to help do something about it, at least. And so the fact that, that Fowler even has to ask the question shows that he's, yeah, he's not all that bright. He's not all that good with finesse things. He is just kind of a brute force type of guy. He's the proverbial bull in a china shop with no subtlety, no sense of detail, little nuances like friendship escape him.
But Peter engages in a little bit of blackmail, extortion, manipulation, bargaining, whatever. I'm not sure there's a clear-cut single word for what he's doing here, but he's using the mentor information as a bargaining chip to find out what's going on, where Neil's going to be, and when. Now, he threatened to upload the data to Washington, D.C., but then he stuck the flash drive in his pocket. So he obviously wasn't just going to hand Fowler the flash drive in exchange for the information. At the very least, he's going to hang on to it and use it as a pressure point, something he can use to hold over Fowler's head. Probably a questionable tactic, legally, morally, ethically. We see hints that Peter here is willing to bend the rules even farther than he used to be. You can understand, given the situation with Elizabeth and what's happened to her, but I think it's equally as, as much about his friendship with Neil as it is with the situation with Elizabeth and the situation with Fowler and his career, Peter's career. I, I think it's a combination of things altogether. But he doesn't give Fowler the flash drive, and he doesn't say he is or isn't going to upload the information to D.C. He just kind of leaves it hanging there in the air. But having discovered where Neil is going to meet Kate, Peter obviously heads off to confront Neil. Neil, I know about Mentor. And I know you can walk away and it's all legal. And what are you doing here? I'm here as your friend. I know you're making the biggest mistake of your life. This is what's best for everyone, Peter. You go back to your life, I get to have one of my own. You already have one, right here. You have people who care about you. You make a difference. You do. I gotta go. You said goodbye to everyone but me. Why? I don't know. Yeah, you do. Tell me. I don't know. Why? Gary, you know why. Tell me. Because you're the only one who could change my mind. Did I? Peter. Back in Vital Signs, Neil told Peter in his drug-induced state after being basically kidnapped by the hospital staff, he told Peter, you're the only one I trust. And he's basically saying that same thing again when he, when he says, you're the only one who could have talked me out of this. That's almost an admission by Neil that he could be talked out of it and that he's afraid to trust Peter on this one. He doesn't want to trust Peter on this one, because if he talked to Peter, if he told Peter goodbye, Peter might have talked him out of it. And even though he trusts Peter, he didn't want Peter to talk him out of this. So his want of this is overriding his trust in Peter, in the sense that he probably knows that Peter's right at this point, but he wants it so bad, he's so obsessed that he's going to avoid the common sense decision Peter's directing him to. And the only way he can avoid that is to avoid Peter, because you're the only one who could have talked me out of this. He's clearly hesitating. He not only stopped to talk to Peter, every time Peter started to talk to him, he hesitated. Now, part of that is just 
you know, respect for Peter. Hey, you're talking to me. I'm going to stop. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to converse with you. But I think it was also maybe a little bit that he was hoping that Peter would talk him out of it. And then, of course, the plane blows up and his hesitation, Peter's being there. Peter's trying to talk to him and talk him out of leaving just saved his life. Which brings up the bigger question, who wanted to kill Neil? They had already given him fake identity. They had already basically co-opted him, or so it seemed, but they still wanted him dead. Now, he was still a threat because he knew about Fowler. He knew about the music box. But I would have thought that that could all have been neutralized by the fact that he had become an OPR asset, so to speak, that they had all the paperwork that they needed to to discredit anything he might try to say in the future. The threat could have been dealt with if it came up rather than going the messy route of blowing up the plane with him and Kate on it. So it all begs the question, what else do we not know? What else does Neil or Kate or both know that we don't know that they know, that they don't know that they know? Or, you know, what exactly is the story here? We don't know yet. I guess we're going to have to find out in season two. But that's the end of this episode. That is the end of season one. I want to thank you for being with me here for this season and following me with these episodes. For more information about how you can contact me and access to show notes, for access to the links for all the resources that I've used on this episode and other information, head over to www.whitecollaredpc.com and you can find all of that as well as ways that you can support the show financially. I want to thank you again for listening and ask you to join me next time for a special episode where I will have a special guest join me as we look back at season one. Till then, take care and God bless. (laughs) 